Welcome, welcome my friends to the Beggars and Brawlers podcast. This is episode number 26, recorded the 17th of August, 2021, as I sit in a truck stop parking lot in Rollins, Wyoming, waiting for my semi to get fixed. It's windy, there is a horse corral just outside, and some big trucks passing by, so you may get a little bit of uh, ambient noise. And I'm bored enough that I thought I'd bring you a little bit different kind of episode from our usual. As you may know from my reading updates, I've been reading The Gathering Storm, and I had so many thoughts on this book, so many writerly thoughts, that I thought maybe you'd be interested in them too. So if you're interested in writing, or you're just interested in story, and you like to geek out on it the way that I do, this is the podcast for you, a writer's perspective on The Gathering Storm. So, if you know me at all, <laughs> you probably know that I'm a huge Brandon Sanderson fan, and I have been on this epic quest to read these three massive novels that he wrote to finish out the Wheel of Time series, which was one of the series that really locked me into being a fantasy reader. Uh, back in the day, I read them in middle school and high school and loved them, and as an adult, fell in love with Sanderson through different means. and wanted to read them, and I tried just jumping into the Wheel of Time series where I'd left off, and uh, that was around book eight, and that proved to be impossible. I had no idea what was going on. Reading Wikipedia didn't help. So, I don't know, three years ago or four, I embarked on this epic journey to start with the eye of the world and read through the whole thing with the goal of getting to these books. And now, finally, this summer, <laughs> that epic quest, which was mostly pleasurable and a little bit painful during the last few books, has paid off. And I've been reading The Gathering Storm, and as expected, it's been a really good book, and I have loved reading it, and it's got all the things that I love about Sanderson, plus that world of Jordan that I love. But what I didn't expect was how much I'm learning from the book. It's just so interesting to see how Sanderson takes the world and story and characters that Jordan created and focuses them and makes what felt honestly like kind of a sprawling muddle of an epic fantasy series towards the end of the books that Jordan wrote. He takes it and focuses it into, yes, a very long and very epic, but still very tight and very satisfying story. And I think there's a lot to be learned from that, and I appreciate it a ton. And so as I was reading it, I couldn't help having all these thoughts. I started to take notes and outline the chapters, and in the end, I've got, I don't know, like a 8,000 word document that's just me thinking about this book that I read. And so I thought I'd share some of those thoughts with you with the guiding principle, for me anyway, as a writer wanting to become a better writer, of remembering when I was learning Japanese, and no, I did not learn it completely, I'm not fluent, but I, uh, I could speak fairly well while I was living there. And I got to a certain point where more than textbooks, what was the most helpful for me, and more than even talking to native speakers, was talking to or talking with other non-native Japanese speakers who were better at it than me, especially if they had English as their first language, because I would hear them saying things that I wanted to say and I couldn't figure out how to say, and I knew that they weren't like the native way of expressing the idea or the concept or the feeling in Japanese, because I had never heard them before, but when I heard that native English speaker say it in Japanese, I was like, ah yes, that is how I can say the things that my English brain still wants to say, and it doesn't know how to get out in Japanese. And it isn't as though that's fluency, but it's moving closer towards fluency. And I feel like I'm at the same point in my writer's journey right now with uh, 
Brandon Sanderson at his point in his career. He is a better writer to write this book than I am, but he's not at this point the writer that he is now, um, who does things very naturally in a very deep way. His methods and his viewpoints are a little more obvious, and if you listen to the lectures that he gives at BYU and then read this book, you can see them in action. Um, and I found that really interesting because I've been listening to those lectures too as I drive down the road in the summertime. I have lots of free time while I'm driving. And so I took him like a non-native speaker, you know, if you consider like current Sanderson and late stage Jordan to be native speakers. And I guess I could go off here about Jordan's Conan books and how they were sort of like his non-native speaker days when his uh, method was a little more obvious. And honestly, those were a big influence to the first book that I wrote, which was also Conan fan fiction. But that is an aside. <laughs> I found that there was so much to learn from Sanderson because when he wrote these books, he was one step beyond me, but not like so far beyond that I couldn't see what he's doing. And so I worked through all this stuff just for my own benefit and the benefit of my books. But I thought maybe you'd be interested in hearing it too. If you're a writer too, and you're thinking about how to write especially satisfying stories, because I think Sanderson is so good at that. Or if you just have a love of story and you like thinking about the movies and books you watch and consume and uh, how the stories are put together and what makes them so compelling. That's ultimately what I'm interested in too. I'm just thinking about how I can weaponize it for my own books. <laughs> and I have actually already started weaponizing this in my current book, The Dragon Bard. So I am going to structure this in first looking at how Sanderson took the kind of sprawling chaos that was the series that Jordan left him and brought order to it and how satisfying and wonderful that is, uh, even though it was a simplification. Um, and then some of the interesting choices that I think he made in like just cutting out some things Jordan had that weren't actually good for the story, some plot holes and some like duplications. And then I'll talk about a few of the lessons that I learned from it, the kind of like the generalizable things that you can take away and say about any story is going to be better if you do this or that. Some of the things that I think he didn't do super gracefully and maybe even the flaws. Um, and then uh, a question that I have for him, there is at least one thing that came up that I just straight up didn't understand why he did it. And so Mr. Sanderson, <laughs> if you encounter this, maybe you can hit me back with a response. I should say that this is a very spoilerific episode for The Gathering Storm and all the books that came before it. So if you're not that far in the wheel of time, you might not want to listen to this because I think I'll talk about things enough that it will spoil them for you. So with that in mind, The Gathering Storm, A Writer's Perspective. So for me, the most brilliant thing about this book was how Sanderson took what was just kind of spiraling out of control and brought order to it. He has a character in here, Tuon, who becomes Fortuona, who sees the world as chaos and feels like she needs to bring order to it. And that's her guiding light throughout the book, even though we don't get much of her. And I feel like in some ways that's Sanderson taking over the wheel of time. To me, at least, the last the books that came before this had these hundred page prologues in which a bunch of characters you didn't remember the names of did things you weren't sure if it was going to be important and then like the entire book felt like middle like there was no beginning and especially there was no end there was no like conclusion to the things that had been brought up in the book it felt like you were just reading a bunch of stuff happening that was taking characters from points c to points e or f 
but never to the end point. And the beginning point was buried so long ago that you didn't even really know what journey it was that you were on. Sanderson does not do that in these books. He kind of clarifies where are they at. He gives you an A. He says, here is the A of Rand. Rand is no longer insane. He's cleansed the source. And his goal in this book is to unite Aradoman, or however you say it, um, because it's one of the last countries he needs to bring under his power, and he thinks there's a Forsaken there, he's going to have to fight the Forsaken. That is what Rand is up to, and something else happens to him, but you get that clear starting point and those clear goals, and this is something Sanderson talks about in his lectures, that if you want a book to be satisfying, you have to know where the character is going and then plot out the points along that path that will show us that we're getting closer to that goal or resolving that conflict, whatever it is. And of course you can have twists, but if that twist makes sense and the twist then gives you another path towards that goal or sets a new goal, you still have that feeling of progress. And it's when we're reading a book and we don't really know if the character is getting closer to their goal or what their goal is, that's when even an, like an action-packed book can feel boring or meandering because you don't know where you're going or if you're getting closer. So. He does a really good job of it in this book, and I'll point out how he does it in the other arcs too. But um, Rand is focused, for the first three quarters of this anyway, in unifying Aradoman and defeating the Forsaken there. And he does them as best he can, and every chapter he's got points. He's like scheming with other people for the politics of how to do it, and using the tools at his disposal to do it, and like coming up with a plan for the Forsaken and all this stuff and the side characters get drawn into his quest to do that. Nynaeve helps him, Codswain tries to help him, his Aiel allies help him, his generals help him, and sort of all under his control. So he's very much a protagonist in that way. He's making things happen, and the side characters are coming along for the ride and doing their part, and we know exactly where we're going. And so when we get there, or we get beats along it, it's satisfying, even if Sanderson gives us a twist that uh, Rand, when he uses this other power, becomes really dark. And so the methods that he starts to employ in the beginning, or in the middle and the end of the book, are questionably moral from someone who's always been pretty noble, bright, moral character up until now. And that's really interesting, and it's not something that you saw coming from the beginning. And I have my thoughts, so there's a truck going by. And that's really interesting, and I have my thoughts on why Sanderson did that. I don't think it was an accident, but for now I just want to say that it's so satisfying to, to get those beats along that path of progress. Um, and he kind of does that for all the characters in the book. Egwene, who I think is probably the main character of this book because we spend a ton of time with her, and her story is definitely the most complete and the most satisfying. She was already on a really cool path from the last book, and I actually had gotten excited about Jordan's writing again because here finally was a clear story arc. Egwene is imprisoned in the tower, you know, like with Elida, who thinks she's a rebel Aes Sedai and is half mad herself, and she's got to get out somehow. And from the first chapter, Sanderson's like, here she is. She's in a position of powerlessness. She wants to unite the tower. That's her mission. Not only the rebels and the old tower that didn't rebel, but also the Ajas, which have become so fractured within the tower. And she has this personal arc of overcoming pain because she's getting beaten every day. And this sort of like larger goal of proving herself as the Omerlin. That's how she's going to unite the tower and prove herself to everyone is she's going to earn it by being the best armorland she can not letting them make her act as less she's going to continue acting as armorland even though they see her as a novice and she's laser focused on this for the whole book even when gowan comes up who's this guy that she has all these like butterfly feelings for whatever 
She's like, look, I can't deal with you right now. I've got to be Amarlane. And she sort of brushes him aside after like his whole thing in this whole book is like, I got to get to Egwene. And when he finally gets to her, she's like, stand aside, my dude. I got stuff to do. And every chapter that we have of her shows progress along it. There are these like intense moments where the first time that she meets with Elida, she's so angry that she knows she's going to do something that's not in her best interest. So she like spills the gravy thing to make herself go away. But we get a sense of, ah, there is going to be another showdown between these two and it's going to be more epic. Then we have beats on her becoming more accepted and dealing with the pain better and earning the trust of the people who think that she's just a rebel girl. And then we have a second epic moment where she goes and serves Elida for dinner and all the sitters are there and she proves her worthiness as an Amarillin even though Elida doesn't see it that way and draws Elida into doing bad things, which eventually leads to her downfall, kind of. And that's one of the flaws that I'll talk about later. But then we go back and now she's in prison totally and can't get out and can't talk to people and we see her still working from that completely powerless position to do what she can to unite the tower and to bring Elida down. But she's actually okay with Elida staying in if that's what the tower needs, which is that sort of like self-sacrificing hero that we love who will give up even their own needs or wants for the sake of the goal or the common good. And so her story is just so good. And obviously she comes out of that powerless position because the tower gets attacked and she's the one who's smart and organized and actually resists the Sanchan. And it's a wonderful story. It's so satisfying. Sanderson is super good at writing protagonists who are like powerless and have to get scrappy against overwhelming odds. That's Kaladin in the first book of the Stormlight Archive. And this story was wonderful in my favorite part of the book. And it's again an example of him taking something and laser focusing and saying, here's where she's going, here's where she's at now, here are the beats along it, and you have this satisfying sense of progress and of like victory, even when she gets defeated, that they're moral victories. So that was really awesome. And some of the other orders that he brings to the chaos that Jordan left him is Avienda, who was pulled from her situation in the last book. We really didn't know why. And he continues that attitude of why, but he makes it a personal challenge for Avienda in her training to be the wise one, she's being punished and she doesn't know why. And in her culture, it's shameful to not know why. She needs to figure it out so she won't talk to anyone. And the punishments are really severe and very shameful. And she, we get beat after beat of her not getting it and trying to figure it out and failing. This is what we call a try-fail cycle. And even though she doesn't make progress in the way that Egwene does, Egwene, like every beat that we get of her is basically a success. And Aviendas are all failures, but it makes us like her all the more for trying so hard and not giving up. And when she finally gets through it and sees through the whole thing the wise ones are doing, it's super satisfying and it's awesome. And then she disappears in the middle of the book and we don't care because we're like, that was a great story. And I guess I'll see you next book when you probably have more plot important stuff to do. So those are the characters that have really complete arcs that are really satisfying, Rand, Egwene, and Avienda. And then there are other ones that don't really have a full arc, but they're really important to the plot. Like Cadswain, when she figures out how to break the Forsaken, she has tri-fail cycles in that too. And when she figures it out, it's related to her own character and it's really satisfying. But then she just kind of does stuff and fails for the rest of the book. And it's not as satisfying. We start to kind of dislike her. And Sanderson has said that he actually really disliked Cadswain as a character and didn't know what to do with her. And that kind of comes out here, but that's fine. I do think that this is one of the points where he said, I've inherited something from Jordan that I don't know what to do with. Cadswain, as Rand's advisor, he has no idea where it's going, and I couldn't tell where it was going in the previous books either. And I think Sanderson was just like, rather than 
like, I can't find a way to make this work. And Nynaeve makes way more sense because she's a central character. She comes from the two rivers. She, Rand has a reason to trust her. So in this book, basically, he makes Cadswain fail very hard and Rand basically banish her and continue failing. And then Nynaeve to earn her place as the advisor that makes sense. Instead of Rand kind of having two, like, basically, Sanders just like, Cadswain doesn't work for this, Nynaeve does, and he, like, fits the plot to that. And I think there are a few other places where he shapes the story to be the story that he can really work with. Another character that has a lot of plot, but not really any kind of character change is Matt. He goes on this big side quest, there's this, like, bubble of evil village, whatever, and it doesn't really matter. It's totally a side quest. Probably the most important thing that happens is he meets with Varen at the end and he sets up that like his Illuminator is making some really like good mortar shells to throw at the enemies in the last battle. But like really you could delete Matt from this book and I don't think it would matter much. I kind of assume that he's laying seeds here for Matt to be more important later. Iteralde, this like very talented general, is another one like this who has some plot stuff. He like is facing defeat at the beginning, and then Rand sends him up to the to the borderlands to like be his general fighting the last battle. And uh, that's important, but it doesn't really do anything. And then we have this character, Perrin, who's always been my least favorite of the three male main characters in this series anyway. And what he has is the beginning of an arc. I think Sanderson has his plan. He knows where Perrin's going, but this is not Perrin's book. So he kind of like just shows us what Perrin's struggle is, his struggle between wolf and man. And we get some very internal chapters of Perrin where he's just dealing with his, I don't know what to do with this battle rage wolfie inside me that came out at the end of the last book. And I want to be a man, but meh, and I can't connect with my wife, but meh. And honestly, what happens, I think, when you have a character who's struggling inside and they don't take action on it and they don't have change, they start to feel whiny because they just keep going back to this thing. And that is absolutely how I experienced Perrin in this book. You could hear it in my voice as I started talking about him. He just doesn't go anywhere. He has the beginning of an arc only. He's at A and he's stuck at A the whole time as far as I can tell. And that's just not interesting to read. So. I don't know, I think this book might be better if Perrin wasn't in it, or if he at least got to be, but that's a choice that Sanderson made, and that is a question that I would like to ask him, is why even have Perrin in this book if you're not going to give him any plot? Matt has no arc, but he has plot. Perrin has no plot, but he has arc, and of the two, Matt is fine. It's just a fun side quest. Perrin is like, God, I just want to be done with this, like, confused chapter about a wolf dream thing. Jordan was big into the symbolism and the like confusing dreams and the alternate realities and like all the whispers that you hear in the end about things that are going on that you don't actually know which one is true. It's never been my favorite thing. I think a little bit is fine as a spice, but too much and as a reader, I'm just kind of like, okay, can we get to the part that matters? Because this obviously doesn't. Um, and that's how I felt about Perrin. So uh, I started to think about these viewpoint characters in terms of how satisfying their stories were. And I think Catswain is really satisfying in the beginning because we see her having tri-fail cycles in Breaking the Forsaken. She can't figure out how to get through Semirog. And eventually the key is understanding herself as being similar to Semirog. And that's really cool. That's a cool character moment. Even if she doesn't really have an arc or change because of it, we feel like, ah, we solved the mystery. She tried hard and she got it. That's cool. So that was really satisfying, even if her plans failing later kind of just make her like an annoying or unlikable character. And Sanderson is not trying to make her a likable character in the way that I'll argue he tries to make Nynaeve that way. 
Matt is still satisfying because he takes us on an interesting side quest. There's an epic battle scene in it. It's like really intense. And so it's still fun, like too much of that in a book and I'm gonna feel like it's all like external action. This is just an action movie, but a little bit is fine and it'll break up the more internal chapters or the more like in between chapters where things are happening but nothing's coming to a head. It's definitely less satisfying to have Perrin with just his beginning of an arc and no plot. Gowan is similar. He has the beginning of an arc, but he kind of goes from A, I'm like leader of the sons of whatever, but I don't really know where my loyalties are. I just love Egwene, to B, where he abandons them and he goes to the rebel camp and Gareth becomes an advisor and kind of gives him good questions to chew on. And even though Gowan doesn't really matter to the story and he doesn't really change as a character, he just wonders, it's still more satisfying to go from A to B and to get that moment of him and Gareth having mentorship as they do like kind of plot important stuff. And minor characters, Gareth and Suan Sanche, they have an interesting little interaction and you know, they end up admitting their love for each other and that's cool. And I don't really feel like either of them go through a character change so much as they just admit the things that they've already had changing inside. But that was like satisfying because we get a moment with them where it comes to fruition. This is like the C or the final moment of arcs that have been happening for books. And so we don't get the beginning, but we get the end. And that feels great. And uh, Varen was so cool. This was really satisfying. She kind of comes out of nowhere, does a mysterious thing with Matt, shows up surprisingly in the middle of the tower and is like, I'm a dark friend. <laughs> and then she explains why. And she's like a virtuous dark friend. And it's so cool. And this is, I think, I don't know if Jordan planned this. I would really like to know if, the, if Jordan thought this out or if this was just Sanderson coming up with a really interesting backstory for Varen that wasn't there because he said elsewhere that this is a thing that he does. When he's reading a book and a character does dumb things or they're not very interesting, he invents this like ulterior motive for them or this secret story to make it more interesting. And I would not be surprised if that's what he did with Varen because that's how this feels. Out of nowhere, suddenly she's the resolution to a really cool mystery and she sets a bunch of stuff in motion because now Egwene knows who the Black Aja is and she can battle them as, as Amrlin. So that's super cool and that's like just giving us C or it's just giving us the final beat of a mystery. We didn't get the other beats to, but we're still like, whoa. So that's really interesting to look at too. Like if you're only gonna give me beginning, like Perrin, that sucks. If you're gonna give me beginning and middle, like Gawain, that's all right, we got change. And maybe better than the two, if it's a really cool end, just give me end of this side character who's been in the background, but the end is awesome. That worked really well too. Elida also finds what I think is her end here in becoming a Demane. But we've gotten A, B, and C from her over the course of the series, and she's not a main character here. I'm not sure if we ever get her point of view, and that's fine. Um, and, you know, I think there's like a certain kind of like cruel pleasure to the justice that she gets of like now she's leashed and someone else is going to be in control and she was a bad person. But to me, this is one of the places where the book was not as good as it could be because I think it'd be more satisfying. Egwene is trying so hard to unite the tower and part of that is having Elida punished for the things that she's done wrong and stilling Swan and being raised in secret and all this stuff. And she doesn't really pull it off. She creates a situation where Elida gets censured, but Egwene doesn't truly win, it's just luck that the Sanchan take Elida. And to me, luck is never as satisfying as something that the characters earn. So I felt like that was, you know, a place where we got C and it's like sort of satisfying, but it could have been better.
Yeah, so I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned there about what felt satisfying and what felt like boring or plotless in thinking about focusing us. He focused all these characters and do we get the whole story? Do we get just the beginning or the end? Um, here comes another noisy truck carrying massive boulders. So, um, I mentioned that I would talk about some of the places where I feel like Sanderson just did away with things that weren't serving the story that he wanted to tell or that he couldn't use. And one of those is Katsuena's advisor. He kind of slaps Nynaeve in her place and she makes more sense. Another one, I thought, was the destruction of the access key that he's carrying around. It's this huge threat, this whole book, you know, like that he's got unlimited power available through this access key. And it kind of like balances out his temptation to use this other power that he accesses that's making him evil. But the access key breaks one of Sanderson's laws that limits are more interesting than powers. This thing has no limit. It's just massive power whenever you want it. You want to bail fire a whole castle? Cool, go ahead and do it. You know, like, and that's not interesting. This is a problem that I've run into in my own books. And so I think that this is a plot hole for the way that Sanderson looks at stories. He's like, I can't work with this because he can do anything he wants at any time. And it's scary because he's evil, but it also means that like he can probably just walk up to the dark one and bail fire him to the face and we're all good. So he had to get rid of it and he gets rid of it in the end. And to me, it felt a little bit forced. Like he didn't really have a strong reason to get rid of it, but that's fine because we know that it's going to be a better story afterwards. But in thinking about how he constructed these last three books, I thought it was really interesting to see him get rid of that because I think it just like would have kept him from telling a really satisfying story based on his own perception of limits and uh, yeah, what kind of stories are cool. And I think in the same way, Rand, when he cleansed the source and is kind of making peace with Luz Theron, it's sort of like he's on the up and up in terms of a character. But that is kind of a plot hole too, because then you've got this all-powerful character who's noble, bright, and virtuous. He's overcome his insanity and his personal problems. And now he's just gonna like, you know, be a tool and fight the dark one and whatever. And his story's not very interesting to tell. It becomes just a question of how is he gonna do it rather than whether is he going to do it or like what does he have to overcome? And so to me, it felt like this new power. I'd be really interesting to know if Jordan had this planned out or if Sanderson brought it in. And I feel like there was a little bit of this in the end of the Eye of the World where he's cutting these lines of power from the Forsaken that he's fighting. But basically, I felt like this was introduction of new character conflict for Rand because he's not very conflicted in any other ways. He's accepted his fate. He's laser focused on it, like won't even spend time with his lovers because he just has to go fight the guy and die and he's being so hard and brittle. And we get like, there's a lot of B in this book of him going from steel to being Quindiar, you know, like he's gonna be even harder. And it's like, okay. And I'm glad that he doesn't focus on that too much because it's kind of annoying because we don't get movement on that, but we do get movement on him suddenly becoming kind of evil. And we now have the question of, is he going to do it or is he gonna do it in awful ways? like? bail firing an entire palace and then in the end he considers just bail firing an entire city because it's a Sanchan stronghold. We're like, whoa, this is not the Rand that I knew and this is interesting. But if we hadn't had that whole section of him um, discovering this other power and it making him evil, he wouldn't do that. That conflict wouldn't be there. And I think Rand's chapters would be kind of boring because it'd just be him plotting and doing things instead of being internally conflicted. So that to me sort of felt like Sanderson is putting in a character conflict so that Rand continues to be interesting. 
Yeah, and then I sort of wonder if he didn't get rid of Rand's annoying and kind of outdated gender notion of not killing women just because we know we kind of got to get rid of the Forsaken before this story is over and some of them are women, so what are you going to do? And, uh, you know, like, it sort of fits into his idea of being evil. If you're really on board with, like, men shouldn't kill women, like, this idea, then, like, it justifies it for you because he's sort of evil now. But it's also just kind of like, I don't know, uh, Jordan's Conan characters were like this, too. And I just found it kind of annoying. I think this is a gender difference between 1990 and 30 years later of like, why does the gender matter for who can be killed and who can't? It's bad to kill people. If they're bad people, maybe they should die. That's sort of the morality of it in most of these books. And I think Sanderson was just getting past that because it was annoying. So those are the things that felt like he was like really shifting the book to make it what he needed it to be, to be interesting. There are a few things where I felt like he just straight up could have done it better. To me, there's a lot of bubbles of evil moment in this book, and it's all just kind of foreshadowing that the end is nigh, and I feel like the prologue does a great job of that, and the motif of the storm clouds do a great job, and there were just a few too many bubbles of evil that were like side quests that did not end up mattering at all. Like, okay, some people got sick because some oily snakes bit them, but basically like it didn't affect the plot or the characters at all, so I think he was a little heavy-handed with that. It felt like there was an un unsatisfying promise here that when the tower learned traveling that suddenly the siege was over and they could attack them and in the earlier parts of the book he describes the layout of the revel camp several times and to me that's an obvious plant for there's going to be an action sequence where he doesn't have time to describe how the army is camped around in a ring around where the Aes Sedai are. So he describes it a couple times. So I'm like, okay, we're getting attacked. And then when they learn traveling, I'm like, well, the towers definitely come, come out and attack. And that doesn't happen. And at least in terms of this book, and I feel like in the next book, there's no reason to have that camp. It's kind of like, why did we have those descriptions in there? So to me, it felt like a gun on the mantelpiece that never went off. I also didn't really buy the attack on Tam, Rand's adoptive father. It felt out of character, it felt really extreme, it felt like it was planned and so it had to happen to make other things happen, and it's kind of like the end point of Kadzuane's failure in trying to control Rand. It just felt forced on his character, it didn't feel like the natural result of what he'd been thinking about and doing for the whole book. I would have loved it if it, you know, like if Tam had been more of like a, a confidant you know, and Rand like comes to a good place on his own, but it, I don't know. That scene with Tam did not work for me. Curious to hear if you felt differently about it. And same with the two chapters of internal struggle that come after. Well, he's like running through the halls of Tyr confused, and then he like goes to the place that's not Abu Dhar, but has a very similar name, Bandar Eben. Have you thought about how similar those names are? Anyways, he goes there and gets sick and like then escapes and goes to Dragon Mount, and it's all just kind of internal struggle. And again, it felt like a lot of B, and we did get a C, it was like, thank God we got a C, you destroyed the access key, and you're feeling better about life, and there's some sunshine through the clouds, and that image is telling us, okay, Rand is getting better, and maybe Tam did actually help in that because it showed him how far he had slipped down, but those chapters were just a little too internal for me. I thought that maybe if he had had Tam to bounce things off of, or if he had had more actions that he was taking instead of just kind of wandering and brooding, or even if he, if we had gotten a scene where he's staying with the tinkers outside Bandar Eben and like, you know, bounces his ideas off them as a no one, that it would have 
just flowed a little better and felt like action. You know, there was just so much internality and action is action, dialogue is action, internal thoughts and narration is not action. And so, I don't know, I felt like those chapters could be better. It feels like he's a little heavy-handed with the mystery around Kalendor. So he destroys the access key, so now this is the most powerful Angriel that he has. And Min's researching it the whole time. Cadswain's talking about it. Rand's thinking about it. And it's like, gosh, I guess we need men and women to use this thing. And that's why it didn't work for me very well before, which is a cool like uh, alternate history revision of how those scenes went in the previous books. I feel like that was Sanderson and not Jordan. But when he says that it's got to be one in three, it's like, okay, obviously the one male one is Rand. Who could the three be? Gosh, I guess he has three lovers. It's like, if that's the solution, it feels really obvious to me. If that's not the solution, this is a really great red herring and good job. I haven't read the, the later books yet, so I don't know, but the mystery felt heavy handed to me because they spend so much time talking about it, but the solution is a little more obvious than the mysteries of say, why is Varen acting so weird? How do we break Simarog? Those kind of things that did feel really satisfying in the book. And Sanderson has said that Matt was the most difficult character to write in this book. And, uh, and you can see that when, when reading it, Matt's first few chapters do feel kind of right on and then like in the later chapters when he's over planning this raid and kind of comically like planning out characters for everybody that did not feel like Matt to me that felt very much like a Sanderson character and Sanderson's kind of humor but uh, it felt off and I'm kind of surprised that that made it through all the revisions without being pushed to be more like Jordan's Matt but maybe Jordan's Matt is just really hard to pin down like that's kind of his character this roguish you know, like devil may care character who actually has a heart of gold and cares. But I felt like Sanderson was off the mark on that. So it just didn't feel like it was, uh, it had a lot of follow through from the previous ones. So those were the things that felt off, but man, in general, I felt that this book was amazing. If there was one question that I could ask Sanderson, I think I've brought up a couple here, but the one that pops out to me is Nynaeve, not in her first point of view chapter, but in her second one, she like just proves the heck out of herself in healing somebody who's sick, in being super proactive, in helping Rand solve the mystery of whether there's a forsaken around and where they are, and being super competent in like just taking action and solving that mystery in a clever way. And those are the three things that Sanderson has talked about as making us like a character, sympathy, proactivity, and competence. He hits all three hard in that chapter, and it's cool, and I like Nynaeve, but I liked her before. And we don't really, like, she doesn't do anything unlikable later that we need this to balance it out. Other than maybe, like, consort with Cadswain, but that didn't feel that bad to me. So I'm really curious why he hit it so hard in that chapter, if there was a reason for it, because it feels really intentional. That is my question to you, Mr. Sanderson, if you have time and you're listening. <laughs> Overall, this book was amazing. I learned so much. It was a muddy, muddy river to a crystal clear one that was tighter and more focused. Super satisfying. Egwene's storyline was amazing. The twist with Rand becoming evil and Samurai getting out and all this stuff. Super cool and super useful to me as a, as a writer who's still learning to take lessons from somebody who is a little bit further on the path and get some of these tools in my hand and I very much intend to use them in my current book, The Dragon Bard, and also in book three of the Tidecaller Chronicles, because they're great tools. And I feel like my understanding of story and what makes a satisfying story is sharpened. So 
I hope that like talking through this has for you too. I know that it's kind of a narrow diagram of people who are listening to this and are curious about story enough to be interested in it and have read The Gathering Storm recently enough to understand the references that I'm making. But if that's you, <laughs> I hope this podcast was good. Uh, it was really interesting for me to record. I know it's a, it's a diversion from the usual, but I just kind of had all these thoughts in my head and I wanted to talk to somebody about them. So as always, I hope this podcast finds you well and in the company of good books. I'm going to go check on my semi here in Rawlings, Wyoming. Till next time, read on. For more information on Levi Jacobs and his books, including the award-winning Tide Collar Chronicles, please visit www.levijacobs.com. Or for a free audiobook, only available to podcast listeners, go to www.levijacobs.com slash free. Thanks for listening and read on.